It's time for our regular segment with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Some interesting stories on the docket today. I'm reading the first one. An award for a neighbor construction dispute reduced on appeal. There's a lot there. Set this up for us. You're quite right. There is a lot there. And I think uh, part of what's there is some, uh, I think, uh, good advice for people who may be doing construction or dealing with their neighbors, indeed. Um, the background of this case uh, involved uh, a neighbor who was uh, rebuilding their home, uh, and it was their house was fairly close to, uh, to their neighbor's house. Uh, and the neighbor doing the construction work had decided to put in a basement, uh, which necessitated uh, excavation work. Uh, and it looks like they decided that they were going to maximize the size of their basement because they decided to excavate all the way up to the very edge of their property line, which the result of which was a uh, like an open pit uh, right next to the neighbor's path to the backyard, which was fairly narrow down the side of the home. Uh, the next door neighbors, I think, uh, not unreasonably were concerned that uh, this was potentially unsafe. They had children, uh, and so they asked that something be done about it. Uh, and the neighbor doing the construction work uh, responded by offering to put up a uh, fence, like uh, one of those uh, construction fences to stop people from falling into the hole. Um, things seemed to, however, deteriorate because uh, it sounds like the neighbors living next to the construction weren't too fond of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and started by, they started by responding, saying that you can put up a fence. We want $25,000 to rent the space for the fence a few inches next to their uh, on their property. Uh, and then they raised their demand to $35,000, um, saying that if you uh, don't take the fence down or that was uh, put up in the interim, you must have agreed to the $35,000 rental to put your safety fence up. Uh, and so that's the fact pattern that eventually got to court um, and uh, then later on to an appeal decision, which just came out. At the original trial... Uh, a, uh, the judge hearing it uh, awarded damages to the uh, people who lived next to the construction. Uh, and the judge did so uh, in uh, a couple of different ways. The judge uh, granted an award for $5,000 for nuisance on the basis that the, the irritation uh, and disruption caused by the construction right up to the property line, uh, but then awarded an additional $15,000 for trespass hmm. uh, on the basis that the neighbor doing the construction work had trespassed by putting the fence up at the request of the uh, next door neighbor to stop people from falling in the hole. Hmm. And the fence was put up just on the other side of the property line uh, because they had excavated all the way to the property line to put in the biggest possible basement. Uh, and so the issue on the appeal was was that proper? Should the original judge have awarded the $15,000 for trespass in the form of this fence going up? And I think three occasions when a construction worker had stepped onto the property, I think to like put the fence up or take it down, things of that sort. Um, and the judge on the appeal um, had to therefore analyze the legal basis upon which trespass uh, can exist and how you should properly calculate damages where somebody trespasses, right? Walking on property or, or building something like a fence, putting it there. 
Um, and the judge on the appeal concluded that there were three different uh, ways a judge could calculate the proper damages for trespassing. Um, the first one would be referred to as nominal damages, where the, somebody hasn't proven any actual loss. Uh, and the judge pointed out that often nominal damages awards would be something like one dollar. You know, yes, yeah. you shouldn't put the fence over the line, but nothing came of that. So here's a dollar. Right? Yeah. Or actual damages where the trespass caused some damage. Right. Um, and interestingly here, uh, the neighbor's inability to walk safely down the side of their house meant they couldn't water some flowers hmm. outside. And so there was an actual damage award, I think, of $200 for the dead flowers. Interesting. And that's fine. Yeah. And then the final way a judge could calculate damages for a trespass um, would be the amount that somebody would reasonably pay for use of the land had they, like, rented it. You know, so let's say somebody, you know, decided to, uh, you know, build their house on their neighbor's property or something, right? You could award what would the rent have been for that space, right? Mm -hmm. But here, because the land in issue was this like two inch strip right along where the fence was put, right? Um, the judge concluded on the appeal that it was a mistake to order $15,000 in damages, right? The, the land wasn't rentable. Uh, you know, the cost of the flowers was already compensated for. Uh, and indeed, there had been this other separate award of $5,000 for the nuisance caused by this you know, big hole up to the property line that was there for an extended period of time, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a result, on the appeal, uh, the court concluded that what should have been awarded was nominal damages, $15,000. It's certainly not nominal. Um, and the actual nuisance and dead flowers and so on were already compensated for. But the court concluded that nominal damages don't always have to be $1, uh, but pointed out that they should still be a small amount. And so the result on the appeal was that the uh, award of $15,000 for trespass in the form of the fence being up for a number of months, uh, taking up a couple of inches of the property, uh, and the workmen walking there to put the fence up, uh, the nominal award should be $1,000 and not $15,000. And so... The takeaway here for people is, first of all, you need to be courteous. That would be probably job one. Mm -hmm. Two, you may not want to excavate right up to, if you're building something, right up to your property line such that, you know, safety equipment can't get in and people can't get in and out. That may not be a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, it's not going to be a windfall for the aggrieved neighbor, right? Yeah. They're not going to get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and indeed, the effort of the aggrieved neighbor next to the construction to try and extract twenty-five or thirty-five thousand dollars in sort of quote-unquote rent for the space the fence was going—that's yeah. not going to work either. Um, and so, be courteous. Maybe don't put your foundation right up to the edge of the property. Uh, but neighbor disputes aren't supposed to be windfalls, and so these kind of uh, irritations are going to result in generally nominal amounts. It may not be a dollar, uh, but it's not going to be a lot. Uh, so act reasonably, try to get along with your neighbors, uh, and uh, of course, uh, don't expect there to be some windfall at the end of the day uh, that you can extract if uh, your neighbor isn't uh, planning ahead and decides that they want their uh, basement running right up to the property line. So there it is.
Next story is a fascinating one. It has to do with a legal doctrine, specifically a word or a term that many of us have heard before, the doctrine of caveat emptor. What's that? Indeed. It's a Latin term. People sort of refer to it, right? It's like buyer beware. Yeah. And indeed, it's a legal principle. It still applies, and it applies in B.C., and it applies to real estate transactions. Hmm. Uh, and this particular case, which just came out, it's a case out of Duncan, uh, and it involved the purchase of a home there. Um, a, a couple who was interested in purchasing a home uh, saw that it was, I guess, or uh, got wind that it might be for sale and went and looked at it before it was listed. They made an offer um, and the agreement was reached to purchase the home. The issues arose because when the home was looked at, it was there was some renovation work being done in the basement with the full knowledge of the people who were purchasing it, right? They saw the work going on. Um, and then there was, as part of the real estate transaction, as is commonly the case, there was a thing called a property condition disclosure statement, which people may have seen if they've been involved in buying or selling a house. Uh, and the property condition disclosure statement will have a whole list of questions. They ask things like, are you aware of any problems with the heating system? Are you aware of any moisture problems? Things like this. Uh, and often a seller would you know, answer that saying, no, 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 right? Uh, but um, you may not want to rely upon that as a guarantee that everything is going to be A-OK. Hmm. And here, the purchaser uh, purchasers did not get a building inspection done, even though they had lots of opportunity to do one. Hmm. And indeed, this was interesting, the purchaser was a professional engineer who specialized in property defects. Huh. Uh, and so had some expertise himself and was described as an experienced real estate investor. Um, and so the purchasers bought the home, and then they complained that various things weren't satisfactory. They complained that the heating system wasn't sufficient for the whole building. And some of the work they complained didn't have permits properly uh, obtained for it, things like this. They also made a claim, which may have been uh, their downfall, claiming that the uh, sellers had uh, improperly removed a washer and dryer, replacing them with a mold-infested, <laughs> unusable washer and dryer. Yeah. And so their claim included that. Now, that's perhaps where their downfall started, uh, because the judge astutely found that there were pictures uh, of the washer and dryer, including after they had uh, gotten the home, showing that the old one, the good ones, had not been removed. Oh. The good ones are still in the pictures, <laughs> showing okay. for under an appraisal afterwards. Wow! And so th that didn't do any good for the credibility of the um, uh, engineer purchaser, right? You can imagine how that would have been a pretty unimpressive state of affairs for the judge when it became apparent on the photographic evidence that the claimed. Uh, scooping of the washer and dryer didn't happen yeah. uh, because they were still in pictures after the purchasers got the home. Wow. Um, and so the judge then in that context had to analyze the various other claims of things like, uh, you know, the heating system's no good or these renovations weren't done well. The defendants in this case called people, including the inspector that inspected the thing, saying that, yes, everything seemed fine from his perspective. Uh, and the judge then analyzed that concept that we started with, that concept of caveat emptor. Um, and the idea there, right, is that um, absent somebody, a seller engaging in things like um, 
fraud or um, willful uh, fraudulent misrepresentation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, claiming something is untrue to get somebody to enter into an agreement to buy something. Yeah. Um, that the purchaser has the obligation to make sure that um, the property is satisfactory. Um, and the principle there is that absent fraud or misrepresentation, a purchaser takes existing property as he finds it, whether that be dilapidated, bug-infested, or otherwise. Um, and it's not the uh, there's no um, guarantee that everything is going to be up to snuff uh, for a potential purchaser. That's that concept of caveat emptor. There is an exception to that, right? One of the there are a couple of exceptions. One would be if you have a seller who engages in fraud uh, or non-innocent uh, misrepresentation. That can be an exception to that. Mm-hmm. There can also be an exception for what are referred to as that are latent defects. Those are defects that you couldn't observe by reasonable diligence and inspection, and latent defects which render the property dangerous or unfit for um, habitation. Right? That's another exception. The judge found that that wasn't the case here, even though there were complaints about things like the heating system not being up to snuff. Uh, the judge found that the uh, sellers who had lived in the home for 14 years certainly didn't seem to be aware of some latent defect making the home unfit for habitation. It had been their home for many years. Uh, And so found that that hadn't been made out. And so one of the takeaways for people um, is that um, you have an obligation as a purchaser to be diligent in inspecting property. And you may not want to rely upon things like a disclosure statement um, listing various uh, things, in part because that statement uses the language, I'm not aware of, mm-hmm. right? And so if a seller is unaware of some problem, like, the, you know, maybe the heating system should be more powerful or, the, you know, maybe there was a mold behind the wall or something, right? Mm-hmm. A person can truthfully answer that statement and think, I don't know about mold, any mold issue and I don't know about any problem with the heating system. It could be that the heating system has some you know, issue with it, or there's mold behind the wall. Uh, but if the person isn't doing that fraudulently, they've, you know, accurately responded that, no, they're not aware of any such problem. Um, that's it. And if you're the purchaser, you've got a, an obligation to do your due diligence, look at something and make sure it's satisfactory. Um, and so that's, I think, the really important takeaway for people. In addition to perhaps if you're going to be making some claim uh, make sure there isn't some photographic evidence that uh, undermines the very basis of what you have to say. That may, of course, have a, uh, a pretty broad impact on everything else you're claiming, uh, particularly when you're somebody who's a sophisticated person uh, who, I uh, think, like in this case, should have known better uh, and would have had, uh, in fact, uh, professional expertise themselves uh, to uh, make some form of uh, inspection or appropriate inquiry. So there it is. There we are, legally speaking, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers uh, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. We'll take a quick break and continue the conversation coming up right after this. Legally Speaking continues here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. The third story that we're examining this week, Michael, an interesting one because uh, most of us lay people out there in the audience in either fiction or something else, we know that if, if a piece of evidence can be deemed inadmissible in court, an entire case can turn on that. Who knows how many legal dramas have been written over the years about whether or not that finding might be made. In the real world, though, just because something is deemed inadmissible or a search was unlawful doesn't necessarily mean the whole case gets thrown out. How does it work? 
You're quite right. And maybe this is sort of in keeping with our kind of moderate Canadian nature. Uh, But in Canada, under the Charter, it's a two-step process. And the way that works is that um, if there's an issue about whether the police uh, should have, uh, for example, uh, searched for something in a way they did, um, a judge, first of all, has to determine uh, whether the person's constitutional right has been infringed, right? Like, for example, you've got a right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, right? Um, And in the case in question, the issue involved whether the police had properly searched somebody's wallet uh, when they had arrested them. Um, and the way that works is that when the police have grounds to arrest somebody, and here they were arresting somebody for allegedly obstructing a peace officer, uh, the police are permitted when they are arresting somebody to search for either evidence of the offense for which they are arresting the person, which can't be much when you're arresting somebody for obstructing a peace officer, right? Or um, evidence that uh, might be necessary or, or searching for things like officer safety or means of escape, right? So, for example, police could search somebody to make sure they don't have weapons or handcuff keys or things like that on them, right? Uh, but the power to search somebody when they're arresting a person isn't unlimited, right? The police can't, you know, do a, um, you know, strip search of everyone they're arresting for, um, you know, obstruction, for example, or yeah whatever it might be. So here, the the, uh, judge found that when the police arrested somebody for obstruction uh, and then did a search of the person that included going through their wallet uh, where they found some drugs, the judge found that they shouldn't have done that uh, because you weren't searching, you knew who the person was, you weren't searching the wallet for something to do with the offense, and they didn't think there was a weapon hidden in the wallet, right, as they went through it and found the drugs. So the judge found that the search of the wallet was not permitted, pursuant to that uh, search incidental to a lawful arrest. And as a result, the person's right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure had been breached. But in Canada, that conclusion doesn't mean automatically that the drugs the police found in the wallet would be excluded from evidence. A judge has to go on and give further consideration to what should happen, what remedy should there be for that improper search of the wallet. Um, And there are two sections of the charter that uh, potentially provide a remedy. Um, The one that's most commonly used uh, when there has been a a search that uh, wasn't proper um, would be uh, section 24.2 of the uh, charter. And that section provides for a court to exclude evidence, right? A lot of people would be familiar with that, right? Just as you said, that's a, a common theme uh, in uh, movies and so on, right? Yeah, yeah. But in Canada, the way it works is that if you've got a breach, uh, then a judge, a breach of a charter, right? The judge then would have to go on and consider whether admitting that evidence uh, into the trial would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Hmm. So we have to think about that for a moment. Yeah. And there's a weighing. And the idea there is that if the, let's say the police have done something improper, like searching somebody without a warrant or conducting a search that went beyond what they were allowed to do, a court wouldn't want to say, well, go ahead, we can use that anyways, right? Because the idea is that would be uh, sort of countenancing that um, unlawful search, right? 
and people might well say, well, hold on, what's going on? The police shouldn't be allowed to just rummage through somebody's underwear drawer and then be able to use the evidence they found. That's not on. What's going on here, right? Uh, but the analysis there is not an analysis of, you know, should we or uh, punish the police or should we do something to help out the person, right? The analysis that a judge has to engage in is whether allowing the evidence that was found in that way to be used in a trial, whether doing that would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. It's sort of this bigger picture thinking about how that would impact on um, the justice system generally, right? If you had police who were, you know, routinely knew they could just, you know, go into your house without a warrant and see what they could find and the evidence could be used anyways, right? People, I think, would be, well, hold on. (laughs) What's that, right? We can't have that. Uh, but not every trivial uh, or small <laughs> breach of somebody's rights necessarily is going to lead to that conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. So an example might be, let's say the police get a search warrant for somebody's uh, home, and there's a typographical error, and the wrong address is put on, numbers are inverted, yeah. right? Well, yeah. there was no search warrant for the home, <laughs> right? But oh, I that see. kind of yeah. an example, you yeah. might say, well, yes, there was no warrant. They, the house the warrant was for the house across the street because somebody typed the wrong number on the piece of paper, but everyone intended this house, right? That kind of an innocent mistake, you probably would not conclude that admitting evidence found pursuant to an otherwise proper warrant would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. It was just a whoops, yeah. <laughs> kind of a problem, right? And so that's why there is this weighing. But in the case that was just decided, the interesting thing is the judge said, well, look, you know, this was improper and it doesn't, didn't want to send a message to the police to keep on keeping on with this kind of a, a general search outside of what their actual authority is. But the judge found that excluding the evidence also wouldn't be an appropriate remedy. And so the judge went on to consider uh, Section 24.1, which is another section of the Charter right before the 24.2 that deals with excluding evidence. And that 24.1 section allows a court to grant any uh, remedy uh, that the court considers appropriate and just in the circumstances. And so the interesting approach that this judge used is that the judge found that the uh, shouldn't have been a search, there was a breach of the person's rights, but the evidence shouldn't be excluded under that 24.2 test. But instead, what the judge did is took into account that breach when sentencing the person, because the fellow eventually pled guilty to possessing the drugs found in the wallet. Uh, And what the judge did was, instead of imposing a seven-day jail sentence, which is what the Crown was asking for, the judge imposed a conditional discharge followed by with, with some probation. And the judge, as a remedy for this improper search took that into consideration when imposing sentence. And so it's an interesting example of how there's some flexibility in Canada uh, in terms of how judges are responding uh, to things like a search that may not be lawfully permitted. It's not always that the evidence will be excluded. Uh, And here, there was a bit of a creative remedy imposed by the judge uh, to reduce the sentence rather than uh, excluding the evidence and causing the person to be uh, acquitted altogether. All right, Michael Mulligan, legally speaking, thank you as always, my friend. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070.